volume two chapter nineteen of a strange world by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain nineteen the days have vanished tone and tint maurice clissold lost no time in setting about his search for miss barlow the quantum schoolmistress of seacombe but the first result of his endeavours was a failure the london post-office directory for the current year knew not miss barlow barlows there were in its pages but they were trading barlows barlows who baked or barlows who brewed barlows who dealt in upholstery barlows who purveyed butcher's meat or professional barlows who wrote reverend before or m r c s after their names a spinster of the musical profession was not to be found among the london barlows in the face of this disappointment maurice paused to consider his next effort advertising in the times he looked upon as a last resource and a means of inquiry which he hoped to dispense with so many spurious miss barlows eager to hear of something to their advantage would be conjured into being by any appeal published in the second column of the times there remained to him the detective medium but maurice cherished a prejudice against private inquiry offices and would not for all the wealth of this realm have revealed muriel's story to a professional detective he was resolved to succeed or fail in this business single-handed if miss barlow is above ground her existence must be known to somebody he reasoned to musical people more particularly i'll go down to the albert theatre and have a chat with the leader of the orchestra your musical director is generally a man of the world with a little more than the average amount of brains and i have heard justina speak very highly of herr fisfis flittergilt's new comedy is in rehearsal so i have an excuse for going behind the scenes it was about noon on the day after his little entertainment to mr elgood that maurice arrived at this decision he went straight from his club where he had explored the court guide and postal directory to the snug little theatre in the strand where after some parley with the stage doorkeeper he obtained admittance and groped his way through subterranean regions of outer darkness and by some breakneck stairs to the side scenes where in a dim glimmer of daylight and fitful glare of gas he beheld the stage on one side of him and the open door of the green room on the other justina was rehearsing mr flittergilt in a state of mental fever sat by the stage manager's little table manuscript and pencil in hand underlining here erasing there now altering an exit now suggesting the proper emphasis to give point to a sparkling sentence evidently delighted with his own work yet as evidently painfully anxious about the result i shan't be satisfied with a moderate success he told maurice i want this piece to make a greater hit than no cards you remember what was said of sheridan when he hung back from writing a new comedy he was afraid of the author of the rivals now i don't want that to be said of me no fear dear boy remarked maurice but mr flittergilt's exalted mind ignored the interjection i want the public to see that i have not emptied my sack that no cards was not my ace of trumps but only my knave i've queen king and ace to follow did you hear the last scene asked the author with a self-satisfied smile it's rather sparkling i think and elgood hits the character to the life mr clissold did not approve this familiar allusion to the girl of his choice i've only just this moment come in he said i'm glad miss elgood likes her new role likes it cried flittergilt with an injured look it wouldn't be easy for any actress on the boards not to like such a part no cards made miss elgood but this piece will place her a step higher on the ladder 
don't you think there may be people weak-minded enough to believe that miss elgood's acting made no cards asked maurice quietly i can't help people's weak-mindedness answered mr flittergilt with dignity but i know this for a fact that no acting not of a macready or a fawcett ever made a bad piece run over a hundred nights and with this assertion of himself mr flittergilt went back to his table and his manuscript and began to badger the actors being possessed by the idea that because he was able to construct a play from the various foreign materials at his command he must necessarily be able to teach experienced comedians their art justina looked up from her book presently and espied mr clissold her blush betrayed surprise her eyes revealed that the surprise was not unpleasant have you come to criticise the new comedy she asked that's hardly fair though for a piece loses so much at rehearsal mr flittergilt is always calling us back to give us his own peculiar reading of a line i never saw such an excitable little man but i suppose he'll take things more coolly when he has written a few more plays yes he is new to the work as yet i am glad to hear you have such a good part it is a wonderfully good part if i can only act it as it ought to be played is your leader herr fisfis here this morning asked maurice he is coming presently there's a gavotte in the third act you dance yes mr mortimer and i herr fisfis has written original music for it so quaint and pretty you should stay to hear it now you are here i mean to stay till the rehearsal is over i should like you to introduce me to mr fisfis i want to ask him a question or two about some musical people i shall be pleased to introduce you to each other he is a very clever man not in music only but in all kinds of things and i think you would like him maurice seated himself in a dark corner near the prompter's box and awaited mr fizz amusing himself by listening to the comedy and beholding his friend flittergilt's frantic exertions in the meanwhile he had been thus occupied nearly an hour when mr fizz appeared attended by his arme d'anis in the person of the repetiteur the director was a little man with a small delicate face and a shakespearean brow spoke english perfectly though with a german accent and had no dislike to hearing himself talk or to wasting a stray half-hour in the society of a pretty actress or even bestowing the sunshine of his presence for a few leisure minutes on a group of giggling ballet girls he was evidently a great admirer of miss elgood and inclined to be gracious to any one she introduced to him i think you'll like the gavotte he said playing little pizzicata passages on his violin with a satisfied smile it sounds like bach justina told him it was charming the dance began presently and though she only walked through it the grace of her movements charmed that silent lover of hers who sat in his corner and made no sign lest in uttering the most commonplace compliment he should betray that secret which he had pledged himself to keep when the gavotte was finished justina brought herr fizz to the dark corner and left him there with maurice while she went on with her rehearsal mr clissold gave the gavotte its meed of praise said a few words about things in general and then came to the question he wanted to ask there is a lady connected with the musical profession i am trying to find he said and it struck me this morning that you might be able to assist me i know most people in the musical world answered herr fizz what is the lady's name miss barlow miss barlow how do you spell the name maurice spelt it and the director shook his head i know no one of that name no miss barlow he said 
i never heard of any one so called in the musical profession is your miss barlow a concert singer young an amateur perhaps who has not yet made herself known she is not a concert singer and she must be middle-aged probably elderly the last account i have of her goes back to ten years ago she may be dead and gone for anything i know to the contrary but i have heard that she was living in or near london ten years ago giving lessons in music and that she was doing well she was a retired schoolmistress and had made money therefore was not likely to go in for ill-paid drudgery she must have had some standing in her profession i fancy i know of a madame barlow barlow who might answer to that description said the leader thoughtfully an elderly lady a very fine pianist she still receives a few pupils chiefly girls studying for concert playing but i believe she does so more from love of her art than from any necessity to earn money she lives in considerable comfort and appears to be very well off she is a foreigner i suppose from the name the lady i mean is or was an englishwoman madame barlow is as british as you are she may have married a foreigner perhaps but i really don't know whether she is a widow or a spinster she lives alone in a nice little house in maida vale i wonder whether she can be the lady i want to find the description seems to answer she may have italianized the spelling of her name to make it more attractive to her patrons yes you english seem to have a small belief in your own musical abilities since you prefer to entrust the cultivation of them to a foreigner do you know this lady well enough to give me a note of introduction to her asked maurice if i may venture to ask such a favour at the beginning of our acquaintance delighted to oblige a friend of miss elgood's answered mr fizfiz politely yes i know madame barlow well enough to scribble a note of introduction to her she is a very clever woman with a passion for clever people and i believe you belong to the world of letters mr clissold yes i have dabbled in literature answered maurice just the very man to delight madame barlow she is a woman of mind when do you want the letter as soon as ever you can oblige me with it i dare say a line on one of your cards would do as well i merely wish to ask madame barlow a few questions about a young lady who was once a member of her establishment at seacombe supposing that she is identical with the miss barlow i have spoken of i'll do what you want at once said mr fizfiz he seated himself at the prompter's table and wrote on the back of a card in a neat and minute penmanship dear madam mr clissold the bearer of this card is a literary gentleman of some standing who wishes to make your acquaintance any favour you may accord him will also oblige yours very truly r f i think that will be quite enough for madame barlow he said half an hour later maurice was in a hansom bowling along the edgware road towards maida vale here on the banks of the canal in a somewhat retired and even picturesque spot he found the abode of madame barlow stuccoed and classical as to its external aspect with a corinthian portico which almost extinguished the house to which it belonged a neat maid-servant opened the iron gate of the small parterre in front of the portico and admitted him without question she ushered him into a drawing-room handsomely furnished and much ornamented with diverse specimens of feminine handicraft water-colour landscapes on the walls berlin work chair-covers 
a tapestry screen whereon industrious hands had imitated landseer's famous bolton abbey fluffy and beady mats on the tables and chiffoniers and alabaster baskets of wax fruit and flowers carefully preserved under glass shades a glance at these things told maurice that he was on the track of the original miss barlow such a collection of fancy work could only belong to a retired schoolmistress a grand piano open with a well-filled music-stand beside it occupied an important position in the room early as it was in the autumn a bright little fire burned in the shining steel grate maurice had ample leisure to study the characteristics of the apartment before madame barlow made her appearance but after examining all the works of the art and roaming about the room somewhat impatiently for some time he heard an approaching rustle of silk and madame barlow entered splendid in black moire antique profusely bugled and fringed and a delicate structure of pink crepe and watered ribbon which no doubt was meant for a cap she was a smiling pleasant-looking little woman short and stout with a somewhat rubicund visage and a mellow voice nothing prim or scholastic about her appearance her distinguishing quality being rather friendliness and an easy geniality delighted to see any friend of mr Fizfiz she said with a gushing little manner that had something fresh and youthful about it in spite of her sixty years not affected juvenility but the real thing charming man mr Fizfiz, one of the finest quartet players i know we have some pleasant evenings here now and then when his theatre is shut i should be happy to see you at my little parties mr clissold if you are fond of chamber music you are very kind i should be pleased to make one of your audience however limited my powers of appreciation might be but my call to-day is on a matter of business rather than of pleasure and i fear i am likely to bore you by asking a good many questions not at all said madame barlow with a gracious wave of the pink structure first and foremost then may i venture to ask if you always spelt your name as it is inscribed on the brass plate on your gate or whether it presents orthography the circumflex accent included is not rather fanciful than correct pray pardon any seeming impertinence in my inquiry the lady i am in quest of was proprietress of a school at seacombe in cornwall eminently respected by all who knew her it struck me that you might be that very miss barlow the lady blushed coughed dubiously and after a little hesitation answered frankly upon my word mr clissold i don't know why i should be ashamed of the matter she said smiling it is a free country and we are always taught that we may do as we like with our own now nothing can be more one's property than one's own name certainly not when i came back to england after a lengthened sojourn in romantic italy the dream of my life through many a year of toil i found that i was still too young and of far too energetic a temperament to settle down to idleness and retirement i am speaking now of fifteen years ago in italy i had cultivated and improved my powers as an instrumentalist and i had made myself mistress of the mellifluous language to which a dante and a tasso have lent renown in italy i had been known as the signora Ballo. gradually i had fallen into the way of writing my name as my italian friends preferred to write it and ultimately when i established myself in this modest dwelling and issued my circulars i preferred to appeal to a patrician and fashionable public under the italianized name of Ballo and with the prefix madame your explanation is perfect madame replied maurice 
and i thank you sincerely for your candour and now may i inquire if you remember among your pupils at seacombe a young lady of the name of trevenard madame barlow looked agitated remember muriel trevenard she exclaimed i do indeed remember her she was my favourite pupil a lovely girl full of talent a charming creature have you any idea of her fate in after-life no returned the schoolmistress with a troubled look it ought to have been brilliant but i fear it was a blighted life it was indeed said maurice and then as briefly as he could told madame barlow the story of her pupil's after-life madame barlow heard him with undisguised agitation a little cry of horrified surprise broke from her more than once during his narrative now after considering this case from every point of view i arrived at a certain conclusion said maurice and that was that george penwin and muriel trevenard were man and wife and that you were aware of their marriage it was some moments before madame barlow recovered herself sufficiently to reply she sat looking straight before her with a troubled countenance then suddenly rose and walked up and down the room once or twice made as if she would have spoken yet was dumb and then as suddenly sat down again mr clissold she said abruptly after these various evidences of a perturbed spirit you have made me a very miserable woman i am sorry to hear that madame barlow that poor ill-used girl that martyred girl condemned by her own mother disgraced and exiled in her own home tortured till her brain gave way was as honest a woman as i am a true and loyal wife bound to george penwin legally and with my knowledge yes there was a marriage and i was present at the ceremony i foolishly permitted myself to be drawn into captain penwin's boyish scheme of a secret marriage it was to be the mere legal marriage only a tie to bind them for ever but no more than a tie until george should have won his father's consent or been released by his father's death and they should be free to complete their union a foolish business you will say in the bud but i was a foolish woman and i thought it such a grand thing for my pet pupil my bright and beautiful muriel whom i loved as if she had been my own daughter to win the young squire of penwin madame barlow said all this in little half incoherent gushes not strictly calculated to make things clear if you would kindly give me a direct and succinct account of this matter so far as you were concerned in it or privy to it you would be doing me an extreme kindness madame barlow said maurice earnestly much wrong has been done that can never be repaired upon this earth but there is some part of the wrong that may perhaps be set right if you will give me your uttermost aid it is yours mr clissold command me you have no idea how fond i was of that poor girl how proud of the talents which it had been my privilege to develop tell me everything straightly simply fully i will replied madame barlow and if i appear to blame in this unhappy story you must remember i erred from want of thought i believe that i was acting for the best most of our mistakes in this life are made under that delusion said maurice with his grave smile you want to know how i came to be mixed up in muriel's love affair first you must know that before he went to eton george penwin came to me to be prepared for a public school 
i was a mere girl and had only just set up my establishment for young ladies in those days and i was very glad to give two hours every morning to the squire's little boy who used to ride over to seacombe on his exmoor pony in the charge of a groom a very dear little fellow he was at nine years old i grounded him in french and latin and even taught him the rudiments of greek during the year and a half in which i had him for a pupil my own dear father having given me a thorough classical education and without vanity i do not think many little lads went to eton that year better prepared than george penwin he was a grateful warm-hearted boy and he never forgot his old friend or the old-fashioned garden with the big yellow egg-plums on the western wall he came to see me many a time in his summer holidays and afterwards when he was in the army i never knew him to be three days at home without spending a morning with me he was about the only young man i ever let come in and out of my house without restraint for i knew he was the soul of honour did he first see muriel trevenard in your house no he was abroad at the time muriel was with me my first knowledge of his acquaintance with muriel and of his love for her came from his own lips and came to me as a surprise madame barlow paused with a sigh and then continued her story captain penwin came to me one day just before the michaelmas holidays it was about a year after muriel had gone home for good and asked me for half an hour's private talk well do i remember that calm september afternoon and his bright eager face as we walked up and down together in the garden at seacombe by the sunny wall where the last of the figs and plums were ripening he told me he was madly in love with muriel trevenard deeper in love than he had ever been in his life in fact it was the one true passion of his life i may have fancied myself in love before he said but this is reality i tried to laugh him out of his fancy reminded him of the difference in station between himself and a tenant farmer's daughter asked him what his father would say to such an infatuation that's what i'm here to talk about said george you know what my father is and that i might just as well try to turn the course of those two rivers we used to read about when you were grinding me as to turn my father from his purpose he has made up his mind that i am going to marry land he dreams of land sleeping and waking and spends half his time in calculating the number of his acres if i refuse to marry land he will disinherit me and one of my younger brothers will get penwin now you know how fond i am of penwin and how fond all the people round penwin are of me and you may imagine that it would be rather a hard blow for me to lose an estate which i have always looked upon as my birthright i should think so indeed said i but i love muriel trevenard better than house or land replied he and i would rather lose all than lose her what did you say to this asked maurice i told him that he was simply mad to think about muriel except as he might of a beautiful picture which he had seen in a gallery but i might as well have reasoned with the wind he had made up his mind that life without muriel wasn't worth having if ever i saw passionate reckless all-absorbing love in my life i saw it in him nothing would content him but that muriel and he should be married before he went abroad with his regiment he only wanted the tie 
the certainty that nothing less than death could part them he would ask no more than that she should be legally his wife and would wait a fitting time to take her away from her father's house and proclaim his marriage to the world nothing would be gained by my repeating the arguments i used they were of no avail he held to his foolish romantic purpose of calling muriel his wife before he left england i shall only be away a year or two he said and who knows but i may gain a shred of reputation before i come back return full major perhaps and be able to soften my father's flinty heart he told me that he wanted my help but if i refused it the marriage would take place all the same he would not leave england until he had made muriel his own and you consented to help him he talked me out of my better reason mr clissold i must confess to a romantic temperament and that reason is not my strong point i was touched by the intensity of his love the romance of the situation and after a long argument and doing my uttermost to dissuade george from the step he contemplated i ultimately promised him my aid and pledged myself to the strictest secrecy muriel was to be asked to spend the michaelmas holidays with me and then we were to go quietly to a little watering-place in devonshire where no one would know anything about us or about george penwin george was to slip up to exeter for the license and everything was to be managed in such a way as to prevent the possibility of suspicion on the part of the squire did muriel consent readily to such a plan i think not but however unwillingly her consent had been given before she came to me and when i as woman to woman asked her if she really wished this marriage to take place she told me yes she wished all that george wished he had a foolish idea that her father and mother would oblige her to marry someone else if he left her unfettered she told me and nothing would satisfy him but that indissoluble bond well we went to didmouth the quietest little seaport town you can well imagine and here muriel and i lived in lodgings while george had his quarters at the hotel i think those were happy days for both of them the country round didmouth is lovely and they used to wander about together all day long on the hills and in the lanes where the blackberries were ripening and the ferns beginning to change their tint i never saw such innocent happy lovers the simplest things pleased and interested them they were full of hope for the future when the old squire should relent i don't know how they supposed he would be brought to change his ideas but they had some vague notion that he would come round to george's way of thinking in a year or two as the wedding day drew near their spirits drooped a little for it was an understood thing that they were to part at the church door and meet no more until the squire's consent had been won lest by any imprudent meeting they should betray the secret of their union and bring about george's disinheritance i made them both promise most solemnly that they would not meet after the wedding until george had told his father all and settled his future fate for good or evil i stood beside muriel at the altar i signed my name in the parish register i saw bride and bridegroom kiss with their parting kiss and then i took my old pupil off to the didmouth coach there was no rail to didmouth in those days and by nightfall we were back in seacombe worn out both of us with the emotions of that curious wedding-day a few days later muriel went back to borsal end 
and i saw no more of her till the following christmas when i drove over to the farm one afternoon to say good-bye to my old pupil after having advantageously disposed of my school in rather a sudden way and on the eve of my departure for the continent i could only see muriel in the presence of her mother and father who received me with old-fashioned ceremoniousness and gave me no opportunity of being alone with my pupil and thus i left cornwall ignorant of any need that muriel might have of my friendship counsel or aid i looked upon george penwin's marriage as the foolish whim of a headstrong young man passionately in love but i had no thought that peril or ruin could come of that act and i looked forward hopefully to the time when captain penwin would return and claim his wife before all the world whether the old squire did or did not forego his threat of an unjust will it would be no bad thing for muriel to be a captain's or a major's wife i thought even if her husband were landless or fortuneless better than marrying trade or agriculture i told myself very foolish no doubt but my dear old father who taught me the classics taught me a good many prejudices into the bargain and though i had to get my living as a schoolmistress i always looked down upon trade it pleased me to think that the girl whose mind i had formed had a gentleman for her husband and a gentleman descended from one of the oldest families in cornwall and now mr clissold that is the whole of my story from the time i left seacombe i never heard from muriel penwin though i had given her my london agent's address when we parted an address from which letters would always be forwarded to me you heard of her husband's death i suppose not till nearly six months after it happened when i saw an account of the poor fellow's melancholy fate in an italian newspaper a paragraph copied from galignani you may imagine that my heart bled for muriel yet i dared not write to express my sympathy fearing to betray a secret which she might prefer to keep hidden for ever from her parents the foolish marriage was now no more than a dream i thought a shadow which had passed across the sunshine of her bright young life leaving grief and pain in its track but exercising no serious influence on her future she will get over her sorrow in a year or so and marry some good-looking farmer or a seacomb shopkeeper after all i thought bitterly disappointed at this sad ending to my pretty little romance i wrote to a friend at seacombe soon after to inquire about my old pupil putting my questions with assumed carelessness my friend replied that miss trevenard was still unmarried and with her parents a dull life for the poor girl she feared but she understood that miss trevenard was well this was all i could hear the breaking of a heart is a quiet transaction said maurice hardly noticeable to the outward world smallpox is a far more obvious calamity madame barlow sighed she felt that she had some cause for remorse on the subject of muriel trevenard that she had taken too little trouble about the young wife's after-fate had been too much absorbed by her own musical studies her continental friends and her own interests generally what was the name of the church at didmouth where the marriage took place asked maurice the parish church st john's and the date of the marriage september thirtieth eighteen forty seven this was all that madame barlow could tell him and all he wanted to know it seemed to him that his course was tolerably clear he had three distinct facts to prove first the marriage then the birth of the infant and finally justina's identity with that infant 
his three witnesses would be one miss barlow to prove the marriage two old mrs trevenard who could testify to the birth of the child three matthew elgood in whose custody justina had been from the day of her birth and whose evidence if held worthy of credence must needs establish her identity with the child born at borsal end on leaving madame barlow with whom he parted on excellent terms maurice went straight to his solicitors messrs wilgross and harding of old square good old family solicitors substantial reliable sagacious before the younger partner his especial friend and counsellor he laid his case mr harding heard him with a thoughtful countenance and was in no haste to commit himself to an opinion rather difficult to dispossess such a man as this churchill penwin on the testimony of a strolling player he said it's a pity you haven't witnesses with better standing in the world it might look like a got-up case there is the evidence of the parish register at didmouth church to prove the marriage yes but only an old blind woman to prove the birth of an heiress and only this elgood to show that the infant was entrusted to him and on the strength of his evidence you want to claim an estate worth seven thousand a year for a young actress at the albert theatre the story is very pretty very romantic but upon my word mr clissold between friends if i were you i would not take much trouble about it i will take whatever trouble may be needful to prove justina's legitimacy replied maurice with decision the estate is a secondary consideration of course a mere bagatelle well one of our clerks shall go down to didmouth to make a copy of the entry in the register i'll go with him said maurice End of volume two, chapter nineteen.